Sasha calls me one day. She's like, Mitchell, I think we got Kendrick Lamar. Hey, friends. Welcome to We Can't Print This. This is a podcast that tells you the story you don't know behind the story you do know. Uh-huh. I'm Eden Don. I'm Fiona McCann. Every week we interview a writer of some kind about the stories behind their stories. And this week we welcome Pulitzer Prize winner, New York Times contributing writer, Esquire columnist, National Magazine Award winner. I'm getting exhausted already. I know. Novelist, memoirist, style maven, because that is true, mm-hmm. teacher, and born and raised Portlander, Mitchell S. Jackson. Yep. All now, Renaissance man. He's amazing. And in case you didn't know, he's also the author of the novel Residue Years, the genre-busting survival math, which I loved. And now, a new and truly gorgeous book, Fly, the big book of basketball fashion. Which I loved and I'm obsessed with. She's obsessed. But first, before we get to that, we have been asking you all, our audience, what you'd like to hear about from us. And what questions you'd like to ask to long-time editors and writers. And um, one of the questions we get a lot is what you should expect from an editor or from the editing process, which kind of dovetails nicely into our conversation with Mitchell about working with his editor. Yeah, yeah. And you and I have been on both sides of the editing experience quite a bit because you have done it at a daily newspaper. We've both been at magazines for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple of books, so I've gone through that process. Uh, I always say you have to go in it in a headspace of being ready to take ego out of something. So if you're having a shit day, <laughs> if you... We all have them. If you're having a shit day, if you're just like, you know, battered by the world or tired or not in a good place, that's not the time to read the, when you get your edits back from your editor. Oh, because it can be so crushing. But here's why. First of all, I want to say, just be prepared. Most likely you're going to get a document back that's full of edits. Yeah, you are. And and for people who have not turned in something to an actual editor, the most common things is either, you know, Google Docs or Word track changes, yeah. which is your editor will actually go through and move things around or strike through things or add comments. And so it literally will come back to you in this rainbow of colors where things, so you open it and you do see a lot of red and you get a bit worried and because you get punched you get in the gut. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're not an amazing writer. It doesn't mean your story's not great and deserves to be told. It just means your editor got it and thought, how do I make this better? And it's such a, I think it's a, kind of a, a tightrope walk in a way because you want to honor as an editor, the voice of the author, and you want to make sure that the readers understand what they're putting across. Yeah. And the way you and I have talked about this before, and I was just uh, explaining it to somebody yesterday. A thing I like about the way we work together, which has helped me understand the editing process in general, is if I, if you're editing something of mine or we're working on a project together, you might say, hey, Eden, this line, this little bit here isn't working. You know, I, I don't, this joke you're making isn't landing. What about this? And I say, mm, no, I don't like that. I wouldn't say that. And it's not that we're just having, you know, an argument about my way or your way. The point is, from that, we go, okay, well, what's the problem we're trying to solve? This joke isn't landing or this point isn't clear or whatever. My my deep dive reference to this, you know, 90210 episode or whatever, you're like, nobody knows that. I'm like, okay. You probably do all know it. They probably fine. all know it. <laughs> but that we then go, okay, 
So what's, then what else? And so frequently that third way is so good. It's the best way. And that's always the breakthrough in editing where you're like, hell yes, we got there. You know, and I want you to absorb this too as writers that it is your voice and your name on this thing. And while you can't kind of go in there thinking, this is my perfect prose and nobody should touch it because everybody can be made better. Everybody can make Except maybe Mitchell S. Jackson, but like most of us can be made better. We benefit from that sounding board. And that's really what a good editor should be is a sounding board whose job is not to make your voice into their voice. That's a shitty editor. And I've had yeah. those. I firmly believe that editors should not change words and then not tell the writer. But I have read things before with my byline on them that have gone to print. And then I'm like, oh, fun. This whole last paragraph, yeah, I did never not would have said. And I never would have said it. And that's not good editing to me. No. It really isn't. That That's not a dance. You know what I mean? Yeah, the dance is important. The conversation, it has to be, I mean, I think people are sometimes either afraid to be difficult and they're like, well, I guess the editor knows better, but I feel really badly about this. Or they're sort of the opposite end of the so scale. So in their ego. So in their ego. And you have to be somewhere in the middle. If you have a good editor, it'll be a conversation. It'll be a, I'm not sure this works. Let's, is there something else that, you know, that we can put here instead, just like you described about our perfect relationship. About our perfect relationship. But like I said, it still is hard to the ego oh, because so most hard. writers have ego. So you have to be able to let that go and admit that, oh, somebody might be able to make me better here. And when you have toiled away on this thing to have somebody just kind of parachute in and go, oh, hey, you know, this isn't working. I just like moved your last graph up to the top and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, shit. I know. Sometimes I want to say just, and and you don't not always have this luxury, but sometimes I want to say just sleep on it. See what you think in the morning. You love to say just sleep on it. I like to say just sleep on it because I I know for myself, I sometimes will react in the moment and then I'm like, if I have a bit of distance. It's true. And I let it sit, will I feel better about it? And my final thought is, I believe in the dance. I believe in the third way. But if somebody comes to you with a really easy solution in your writing, don't be afraid to just accept the writer. writer. You know what I mean? If the editor is like, hey, these three sentences on their own are convoluted and crazy. I was able to just pare it down into one and it makes sense. Just accept accept that track change these that person has helped make your life easier just say yes thank you chef thank you chef (laughs) yes chef so anyway with that we should probably let mitchell do some talking let mitchell do some talking okay i spent my whole career writing about fashion and i went to fashion school and i often felt quite lonely in portland being the only fashion editor literally for years and years and years so it's so nice when you read a fashion book that you love. You're like, this is my pizza. I feel, I feel yeah. the love here. But my first question is, you are so comfortable talking about fashion. Mm-hmm. But do you have any, everything is self-taught? Or do you have any training talking about fashion? Like the technical aspects I was super yeah. impressed about. I don't have any formal training. But I think, you know, if you, I've really been enamored with fashion since I was a little, little boy. I mean probably four or five years old, looking into my uncle's closet. And he had all the design Mario's. When Mario's first came out in Portland, yeah. the 1970s, my yeah. uncle was like one of their first shoppers. Uh, and so he would have a closet full of clothes and all the colognes. And I would always be looking in there. And I didn't really know the names for stuff, but I knew what I liked. And I think the older I got, the more I started to pay attention to at least fabrication. So like, 
how did the weight of a denim feel versus, or or the, what kind of wool was it? And how did that feel in my hand versus another kind of wool? So I started to really pay attention to that. And then, you know, the further I got along, when I started kind of tangentially writing about it, I would have to know like, well, what's this scarf thing? Oh, that's an ascot thing that he's wearing. <laughs> I used to guy, I, I went to New York and I was trying everything. Like I had uh, cowboy buckles some years. I had pointy toe <laughs> gator shoes. I had ascots one year. I mean, I, I wore a fur to the club one year. Like I was really searching. Um, and so you got to get up on that. And and now I think <laughs> I see the connection between fashion and, and writing and like creating different textures and thinking about shapes and silhouettes and stuff. And so now I can see it in a whole different way because of, of the writing. That's so interesting. I never thought of that connection. I mean, I love just following your Instagram and seeing your mm. cool outfits all the time <laughs> and your author fashion hashtag. And I always yeah. appreciate it because I think sometimes people assume authors are just sitting in their, what do you call it? Tracksuit, sweatpants, yeah. what do you call them? <laughs> you know, yeah. in yeah. You know, in their, yeah. they're not even meeting anyone. And I'm like, no, we, we show yeah, up. We do, we, yeah, we gussy we, up every once in a while. We gussy yeah. up. Also, I like it because, I mean, you talk about Mario's for people don't know, like that's the, the independent sort of like designer fashion store in yeah. Portland for decades. But also it warms my heart because the stereotype that people from Portland have you know, whatever, we're just crunchy and wear like Birkenstocks and yeah, don't right. have style. I'm like, that's yeah. so, that's just not true. But the thing I really love about this book, and mm, I love that yeah. you specifically in your intro, we're like, we're not just going to talk about decades, we're going to talk about eras. Yeah. And not only did you break it by eras, which when people look at the book makes so much sense, you did the thing that I really love when writing about fashion was talk about eras and then people associated with it because mm -hmm. that helps paint the picture for the non-fashion person so much. So tell me the era and like give me a person that's emblematic of the time. And I feel like that paints a picture for people quicker than anything else. I, I wish I could take credit. I actually was going to start by decades, probably because when I initially, con I didn't conceive of this project, it was brought to me. And I immediately was like, okay, this is the thing that I'm, the person knew that I wrote about sports and that I love fashion, so it seemed like a no-brainer. And I think I was simplified in my mind to write about the decades because that was an easier way to kind of separate the years of the NBA, and also because they were really pumping up the NBA at 75. And then my editor, one of the editors on the book was like, no, decades are like arbitrary. Like, you need to think about errors. And once, they, once he said errors to me, then I started thinking, okay, well, then what defines an error? It's well, also the... Fashion is the easiest in my mind, and I'm mm. the most biased person yeah. possible, <laughs> but it is the, the most fun way to very accurately tell history. I yeah. mean, Mitchell, it's interest, so interesting to me because your you know, personal bookshelf of the books that you've written... Mm -hmm. Like, you never do the same thing again. What? Well, I hope. <laughs> I mean, it's like... You know, you start out with an autobiographical novel and then there's like yeah. survival, like none of the, and now there's like a fashion and basketball book. You yeah. definitely can't be pigeonholed. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but is there a, you know, for you, is there a common thread between all these books? Does your journalism mm -hmm. 
you know, and your magazine column, did they all tie in together? I mean, for me, and it's, I mean, I, I, it really, going, I'm a trained fiction writer, right? So I was never trained as a journalist. Uh, and I remember mentors saying, you know, you're always writing your autobiography. And so while I'm writing about all of these other subjects, there has to be something of the personal in it. Otherwise, I can't stick with it long enough to go through a 10 million revisions. Like, I wouldn't be worried about captions on a basketball book if I wasn't really, really committed to this project. And I spent, like, I actually had to fight with the editors to revise captions. That was the last edits that I made were on captions in this book. And I fought, like, to the point where they were like, well, the book is at the printer. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I told them, I was like, <laughs> my name is going to be on this forever, not yours. And I appreciate what you've done, but, like, 100 years or 20 years down the road, they're going to be like, that was my book. Um, and so, to me, it's like the fact that I love fashion. My very, very first published piece of writing was in the Portland Tribune when it first came out, I think it was like 2000, 2001. And it was called Almost Famous. And it was about four basketball players from my neighborhood who never made it pro. Um, so that was Orlando Williams, Antoine Stoudemire, Denmark Reed, uh, it was three of them. And then I interviewed Damon Stoudemire for that piece. So that was my very first piece. And my second piece was a, a draft story on Freddie Jones, who was a local basketball player who got drafted by the Indiana Patriots. So my very first writing was about basketball. So for me, this is kind of an extension of that. Same thing with, you know, I mean, obviously survival math is a lot about my family, and but it's, it's, it's me taking a look at my family, but then my community in a way that I didn't get a chance to look at it in uh, the residue year. So yeah, it's always something in a personal. And then the question is like, what's the context? I think that's a journalist brain. I, yeah. do. I mean, you say you weren't trained as journalists, but to me, yeah. that's a journalist brain. We're, yeah. we're always that like urge to be like, what's happening? What are the players behind it? How yeah. does it affect people? Because yeah. it's the questions we all have. We all want answered. You're right. I, I really, I probably am more journalist in the way that I come at writing than I am a fiction writer. Like I, I, I never really got into fantasy or sci-fi. I was always like stuck in realism even before I knew what realism was. Um, and so, yeah, I think, and, I, and I'm also very thankful for having done so much journalism, the practition of it, right? Like learning how to interview someone, learning when you, when you hear a quote, like when I'm, I just finished reporting, I was at the March on Washington yesterday or over the weekend. So I was reporting all weekend, right? And so I got a hundred hours of stuff, but I know when I hear a quote, that's going to help me out down the line. I know when I see something, I'm like, nah, I got to get a picture or some video footage of that because that's an image I need to recreate in whatever I'm going to work. So, so that to me is very helpful, even on the, on the fiction side of it. That's it, such a specific high when somebody gives you a quote that you know yeah. you're going to use inside. Yeah. You're like, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so it reminds me as well of that. Um, there's a little quotation in the New York Times piece that we're going to talk about what you wrote mm -hmm. about um, Kendrick Lamar. There yeah. is a uh, I think it's Charles Simic. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The attentive eye makes the world mysterious. Yes. And it does. Yeah. Remind me of that. It's that yeah. attention, which I do think is really necessary for a good writer and a good journalist. 
to see these details that illuminate everything. Um, And I think that article also reminds me that one of my favorite things about your writing is that you always write, or it feels to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but that you always write in your voice. Um, Yeah, nah. (laughs) That's number one. (laughs) Unless you're faking it, in which case you're really good. That's great. (laughs) Best Um, Mitchell Jackson impersonator on the market. (laughs) Yes. And I have found that so inspiring personally. And I remember once writing a piece about you. Mm-hmm. in Portland Monthly where I thought like I have to write this in my voice this is what mm-hmm. you know and like yeah. really making such a conscious effort that if I was going to write a piece about Mitchell Jackson yeah. I was going to have to really write it in my voice which is you know it's uh, strange I felt that writing about Kendrick because I respected his art so much I was like I can't this cannot be a like conventional piece and I really worried yeah. about that. Like I had to find a form that to me was going to speak to the creativity that I saw in his work. And I kept telling my editor that like, nah, it's just, it's just regular. Like it has to do something else. And she's like, I understand, Mitch, we'll get to it. I'm like, yeah, we better get to it because <laughs> it's regular right now. <laughs> yeah. and, they, and you got to, you got to it. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's get into it. How, yeah. did you pitch it? So I think something for the writers that are listening is people always say like, well, how do you pitch? Or what's your, I don't pitch. Really, I don't know how to pitch. And I'm fortunate now that people come to me and just say, do you want to write about such and such? But I will say around the time that I started the column at Esquire, Sasha Weiss from the New York Times Magazine hit me up. She had read the Ahmaud Arbery piece and she was like, I just, I want to work with you, Mitch. And I was like, okay. And she was like, do you have anything that you're interested in doing? And I was like, man, Sasha, I never have any good ideas, but if I, if I think of something, like I'll, I'll email you. Yeah. You never have any good ideas, Mitch. Yeah, I don't really. Like there's somebody else's idea that I didn't take and go like, okay, yeah, this is, I should be writing about this. So a couple weeks later, I had really loved um, Pimper Butterfly and Good Kid, Mad City, because to me, Good Kid, Mad City, an analog to that was residue years. It was like young guy in the hood who's a good guy who's trying to figure out how to navigate these circumstances. And so I, I felt connected. And he was a West Coast dude, too. So I felt connected to Kendrick from his first major release. And then obviously, damn, he had won the Pulitzer. I was like, oh. To me, damn was like survival math. You know, it was like really experimental. It was still about home, but it was always also contextualizing where he was from. So I, I was like, oh, and and this is I didn't know that he was working on Mr. Morale and the Big Step. I don't think anybody knew. So I was like, here's my idea, Sasha. I want to profile Kendrick while he's making something. So like in his off time, I want to do that. And so she was like, okay. We could not get a hold of dude. So this is actually when I start my call, this is 2021. So we, okay. we're not getting a hold of him. And then fast forward to 2023, I've already signed on to be a contributing writer at the Times. I've done a couple pieces with Sasha. Sasha calls me one day. She's like, Mitchell, I think we got Kendrick Lamar. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, but it has to happen quick. I'm like, okay. She was like, can you travel? Let's, yeah, absolutely. She said, well, I think you might have to go to London. Well, let's go. We going to London then. Yeah, let's go. Um, so, that, so that's really how it happened was like, if you, but really it has to start 
with 2013. Or he's 20, I think uh, Good Kid came out in 2012 and Residue came out in 2013. So for me, thinking about those two pieces together, then thinking about Damn, I mean, yeah, Damn and Survival Math, which I think Damn maybe came out in 2018 and Survival Math came out in 2019. So like, how does this dude make a thing? I'm really interested in how an artist crafts you know, whatever they're making. And so I wanted to be able to see some of that process. And then obviously I didn't get to see it. This thing already comes out. And and the other part of it was when they pitched it to me, they were like, he doesn't want to do a solo profile. He wants to do a profile of him and his best friend. And I'm thinking, shit, you know how hard it is to profile one person, let alone a double profile? But one okay. relationship. Yeah, one relationship, but still, like, because yeah, yeah. Kendrick is such a huge figure, I didn't want to, if I took it, I didn't want to make Dave the small person in the piece, right? And that I think that was, that's the risk. You did a brilliant job with that, yeah. because I did not know him. Yeah. You know, I did not know who Dave was, and I, I felt like I understood their relationship yeah. a lot better. But the point is, like, it's a very specific world of having these two opposite parts to them and getting to see that really soft and so many unexpected things. There was the, like, him having a collab and meeting with Trey and Matt from South Park about yeah. doing a comedy together. <laughs> I was just like, what is? It's so unexpected. Do we know anything about that comedy? Oh, it's, it's they're still working on it. I think, yeah, yeah. I, I interviewed... Matt, yeah, Matt for the piece. It was so funny because I didn't know who Matt was at all. And I was sitting, they had like, it was right after the first concert. And it was like a little area for people who were on the risers. This guy comes over, he like, hey man, uh, you think they mind if I smoke some weed in here? And I'm like, bro, I, I don't know. Like this London, <laughs> I don't know what the rules are here. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go check. Then he comes back and he's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I'm gonna smoke. So he just sits down and he starts talking, and then and then the publicist comes over, and she's like, "Mitch, do you know who that is?" I mean, Matt is dressed like he could be a truck driver, like <laughs> on his last leg, like a grubby t-shirt, a, a hat, some jeans. Like it's cold too. He don't got no coat. She's like, "That's Matt something something." And I still I I don't watch South Park, so I didn't know. Then she's like, "Of South Park." I'm like, "Oh." Okay. I've heard of All South right. Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard of South Park. Okay, okay. So it, it, but it's interesting because he started talking to me about Kendrick and Dave, like he knew them. He's like, man, I'm telling you, these guys are so great and the things that they do, and it's just a pleasure working with them, as if I knew who he was and what their relationship was, and I had no clue. <laughs> but it, but I like that too because he was just like a regular dude that just walked up and was like, hey, you got smoke here? I'm like, I don't know. And then it I don't know. I come from Portland. Uh, yeah. <laughs> where it would be yeah. fine. But... Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> That's a good uh, journalism 101 tip for the, yeah. for the new kids listening. Like if somebody comes up and starts talking to you, like they yeah. assume you know what's going on, just yeah. let them keep yeah. talking. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, like exactly. The I like to do the secret Google if you can. You know when somebody's like, "That's so and so," and you're like, uh -huh, yeah. yeah, totally." And then you're taking yeah. your phone yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to have some Wi-Fi in there, I probably would have. We was way down in the Q Q two or whatever 
that's called. I didn't have no good service. Like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So there you were having the chat with him, and he was talking about Kendrick and Dave, yeah. and you were like, "Oh, that's the side part guy." So something I think that's connected to Fly, and I think really speaks to Kendrick and his like place in the culture is like in that room, right across from Grubby Matt, who's a great guy, who's very funny was Naomi Campbell, Edward Ennefull, um, what's homie, Ricardo Tishi, oh uh, one of those other big stylists. I mean, just right over on the couch, like just, you know, chatting it up, waiting for Kendrick to come through, which he never even came down there. So You're going to give me a feel, fashion heart attack. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm like looking like, oh, this is, he brings these worlds together. Like, I don't know. What other rapper? I mean, probably Drake, but I don't know what other rappers would come. Oh, also, um, Martine Rose, she was in there. Like, it was a lot of, fa- it was a very heavy fashion event that that first night. And so I thought, like, wow, this guy's really, you know, like, he's really about this world, too. That's so interesting. It does, it's like the overlap, as you say, between, like, Fly and an article like this. It all yeah. comes back to fashion, Eden. We keep telling it you. It always comes, again, it always comes back to fashion. How do you take something like this? Because that's a huge feature. I don't know what the word count is, but that's a big 6, feature. 6,500. That's yeah. a big feature. Mm-hmm. How do you, how much reporting did you do? Like how much time were you able to spend with them and do that? And then how do you start shaping something, especially when you go, the brief that mm. you've given yourself from day one is yeah. we're not doing a typical feature. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It just feels like you set yourself up with a with a tall order oh, to do no this question. huge profile. So I want to start with, I was at the Portland Book Festival. They kept shifting the date around as celebrities do, as y'all probably have had this happen several times. They kept shifting around. So they shifted it to where I had to run, I had to do my book event at the Portland Book Festival. Literally, there was a car waiting for me. I ran, and I'm not saying like I was jog, I ran out of the event, jumped in the car, went to PDX, caught a plane from PDX to, to Seattle, caught a plane from Seattle to London. Got off the plane in London. When I got off the plane, is the end of the story of test. I got a phone call that my dad had died. But I was going straight from there to meet Kendrick. So, like, this is the... It, I want to say, also, I was wearing the same thing. So I wore... I, I had my outfit that I... I mean, I took it off on to fly, but then I put it right back on. I had on a Prada jumpsuit for my event at the Portland Book Festival. And when I got to London, I didn't have time to change. So I just threw the jumpsuit back on. And the very first thing that Kendrick and Dave said to me was, oh, bro, I see you. You fly. That was it. And it was like we're in community now together. Like we actually bonded over fashion. Dave was wearing a a Prada um, flight jacket. Uh, And and Kendrick had on like a little bandana and some... um, I forgot. I think some Nueve glasses. Um, so I was like, oh, these dudes, yeah. Because, you know, you never know if it's like the stylist or how much of it is the stylist or if they actually know what they're doing. And I was like, Personal oh, taste, these, yeah. brothers, these brothers know what they're doing. So that, to me, was also very, it was, it was something special. So the tall order really became not just the reporting. I had the pressure of 
planning or helping to plan my father's funeral. And he was Muslim. So that he had to be buried in a certain amount of days from when he died. And he died the day I got there. Well, first of all, it was like, do I turn back, right? Now, remember, this is something yeah. that's been percolating since 2012, 2013. You know, when you turn your, your, your phone on, getting off the plane, I had just got out of Heathrow. I get a call from my sister. This is strange. She ne And I say never calls me. So I picked it up. She was like, Mitchell, daddy passed. I'm headed to drop off my bags at the, at the hotel to go meet them. Wow. I'm like, what? So now I'm like, do I go turn back around and go to Heathrow and, and get a flight back? And no, nah, no, nah, what would my dad want me to do? He Maybe he would want me to work on this thing. You've been working on, you can't, like all these people are depending on you. They already told you it's going to be a cover. It's for Kendrick. Like, damn, am I going to disappoint them if I don't do it? So I got all this stuff running through me. And so the whole time I'm reporting, I'm getting calls from my family. So all of this is happening and I don't tell them. Because I don't want to come in in the first words, I'd be like, hey, bro, my, my daddy just died, but I'm, I'm here, though. So I'm keeping all mm -hmm. of this separate while I'm reporting and trying to laugh and joke and build rapport with the fellow. You don't want to be like a, a downer, you know? Yeah. So that was the toughest reporting experience. Also, because I had three days, right? So it's like, it's three days is a lot of time, but then it's it's not a lot. Like I've, I'm doing a report on Al Sharpton. I have spent ten days with Al Sharpton across six states. Whoa! Wow! Yeah, I mean it's the most access I've ever had. Yeah, ever that's so much. That's subject. more time than I've spent with some relatives. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 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 by comparison, you know. Uh, so that it made that part tough. And then I just had this huge expectation that I, especially once you see the show, you're like, oh my God, how can I disappoint? And every, it's not even just him. Everyone that I met on his team was a great person. You know, he was getting back on with me for secondaries and Dave got on for a secondary and a third dairy. And it, like, so I was like, man, I cannot fuck this thing up. And then my family is going, boy, you better. So, I mean, what's not in the story is that I left. God was over me because I didn't have any delays from London to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam to Portland. I had a car waiting at PDX that took me straight from the airport. My bags were in the trunk when I got to my father's gravesite. Like literally when I got to that place, they were lowering my father in the ground. Oh That's God. when I came from Kendrick. They were lowering my father in the ground. And the other thing was I was in Portland. I couldn't went to go see my dad. But I was like, nah, I catch him when I come back. Yeah. And the next time I'm lowering him in the ground. So then we started writing. And I was like, Sasha, I just, I can't focus. I mean, it's probably mid-November when I start writing. But the piece is coming out in December. So that was also a lot of pressure. And there was a point at which we, I think I had wrote down some stuff. And, and oh, no, in the interim, my friend, my, one of my best friends turned 50. So I was in Mexico trying to edit. And I gave it to Sasha. And she was like, man, we just, you know, it's, we got some work to do. Man. So I'm like, I know, Sasha, I know. And there was a point probably two weeks out where she was like, look, Mitchell, everybody here understands what you're going through. 
we can push this piece. If we need to push it, like they'll be upset, but we can push it. Or you and I can just turn to this and only this for the next 10 days. And I was like, I'm not disappointing all these people. Let's turn to this. And I was putting 12 hour days in on that thing. So I don't know how many drafts, but like, you know, I was like, I'm not going to be the one that fucks up the Kendrick Lamar, Dave story for the last issue of the New York Times. No one reading this is going to care that my dad died three weeks ago. They're going to be like, you did not do what you said you would do. You know, I really liked your choice as a writer to put it at the end because, and I thought it was just so beautiful, you know, at the end, talk about everybody grieves differently. And I'm like, Mm. and this is your grief. I just like, I think a lot of other writers would put it at the beginning somewhere. I mean, it was a little bit emotional fuckery in the best way. Yeah. I, um, my old mentor, Gordon Lish, he used- Oh yeah, uh, heard of him. I have heard of him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Back, uh, the very first bit of actual writing advice he gave to me, I'll, I'll truncate the story. He talks a long time and then he tells everyone to go home and write a sentence and and you come back and it's like 40 people in the room and he says, okay, read your sins. And I said, she told me to hold it for safekeeping. And he was like, okay, Jackson, go on. I said, oh, shoot. She told me to hold it for safekeeping and then she took it back. He said, okay. So now I got two sentences. I'm the only person to get two read two sentences in the whole class in two workshops, like literally in two workshops. I'm the only. So I'm like feeling very proud. Then I say rent money from under the mattress. And he says, stop it. He said, Jackson. Don't you ever ask for anyone's sympathy on the page. Do you hear me? Don't you ever ask for anyone's sympathy on the page. He said, but I'll tell you one thing, you got an ear. And so if you think about those two bits of advice, don't ever ask for anyone's sympathy on the page. And Jackson, you got an ear. I mean, that's me on the page all the time. And so putting it at the top would have been asking for the reader's sympathy Sympathy, I hadn't earned. You don't know me. You don't know my daddy. Why do you care? People, daddy die all the time. Like, And I didn't want to color it. In the, in the same mm-hmm. way, I didn't want to give them that information when I first got there. Like, I don't want to color your experience. Like, So I thought that would be unfair uh, and manipulative. But then the other thing was I had to honor my father. Like, how could I go do this thing, have of this course. experience, and then not let it come into the piece in some way. And so that's where I was like, I, I got to figure out how to get it in here, Sasha. I kept saying like, I got to say something about my daddy dying or this piece doesn't feel honest. But I also love how you kind of leave the question in there about like, should you just turned around and gone yeah. straight back? Yeah. And I, but there isn't really one answer to that question. And you, you know, made a choice. And as a reader, we're really grateful for it. But who knows, whoever knows what the right choice in those situations yeah, is. Yeah, for sure. Do I you... mean, if I would have missed the burial, so, I mean, it could have, that that alone could have made it the wrong decision. Yeah. Like 12, yeah. 10 minutes could have made that the wrong decision. Wow. And somehow it. How do you, how do you feel now when you go back and read the piece or think about it? <laughs> so here's a writer's story. So. When they call it down to the wire. I mean, everything I write damn near down to the wire. I'm always pushing on last edits. <laughs> I just did this to men's health over the weekend. 
I had two, I had maybe three edits. She had sent me the, it was in layout, so it was a PDF. I saw it. I had sent Sasha back the edits. So I thought she got them. So the next day, I seen the printed ship version. I said, Sasha, the last edits I sent you aren't in here. I said, can you put them in the, um, for online? That will happen in Esquire. Without doubt, there's always two or three changes I make from print to online. Yeah. She said, oh, no, Mitch, we have a very strict policy. We can't make any changes between print and online. I said, what? She was like, yeah. She's like, we have to issue corrections, and then it's got to go through a different department. And, it, and I'm like, okay. So I go to sleep. Now we're like, this is probably three days before Christmas. So, so let's say it's December 23rd. I go to sleep December 23rd. I wake up. I cannot sleep, actually. I wake up at like 6 in the morning. I email Sasha. I said, Sasha, listen, I've been thinking about these three edits all night long. Can you please push on it? She's like, okay, man. She's like, well, I could ask Jake, you know, if he could talk to the department and maybe he could write a letter for you. And I said, thank you, Sasha. I, I guess she thought I was going to be like, I don't want Jake to do it. I was like, nah, please. Yes. Let's get Jake involved. So a day goes, I don't sleep again. I wake up again. Sasha's like, Mitchell, Jake wrote an impassioned letter to the department and they are staunch. They will not make these changes. And when I tell you, I damn near cried over these edits. And, and you know, it's crazy is one of them, there's a line in the, in the biographical section where I say, outside of Kendrick's house, he would always hear pop, pop, pop for the sound of gunshots. Yeah. And, uh, and I had changed it to like, boom, pow, pap, right? To give a sense of different kinds of guns, the sound that they were making. And that was one. And I, when I, like that gave me so much anxiety that, that I had got 99.8% of the way to where I wanted to be. And the 2% was for some bureaucracy. And yeah. I actually still have the PDF with those edits in it. So when I read it, if I read it online, like I'm grieving over the three things that I wanted to change that I couldn't. It's so hard how many of us have come up against this as journalists where, you know, we're like, I really want this. And the editor says, no, I know best. And, you know, a lot of the times you kind of bow down because you feel inexperienced or you feel like, yeah, well, it's impossible to change, you know. Yeah. It's it's really hard, but I mean, again, you're inspiring me to fight even for my captions. Yeah, man, fight for them captions. I mean, I also think if anyone's listening here, pull out that piece, do us a favor mm. and read it with Mitchell's edits. Do you want to tell us what they were? <laughs> there was that uh, one. <laughs> okay, hold on, love you. I like this. I like this. We're righting the wrongs. Let's, if we had, you know, we might as well get the right words in if we have an opportunity. Okay. It's called, in my thing, Kendrick and Dave for online. <laughs> okay. So, um, teenage Dave, DJ, spending weekends willing Compton with his mentor for gigs. Dave saving enough scratch to cop an Acura is what it says. It should be to floss an Acura, which is what we used to say um, I want to just do the, I'm going to do one more and I'll do the boom, boom, pat because I can't remember exactly what it was, but now I have to force quit. Okay. Let me bring this back. Okay. Meanwhile, all around man, man, and Dave boy, the Pyrus, the bloods, the crips, the essays, 
OGs, BGs, the locked out, whoever, the frequent set tripping. And it says in this one, boom, boom, boom. But the revision was boom, boom, pap. I just wanted to have one different kind of sounding gun. And I mean, I, I, I had to lose at least seven hours of sleep over pap and boom. <laughs> I hear you. And you know what? Your revision is better. I'm just yeah. gonna... <laughs> Thank you. As a, as a, I appreciate yeah, that. It is yeah. better. It is. <laughs> I agree. It just adds a little, adds some texture. Yes, exactly. Boom, 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 pop. pop. Yeah. I like it. I like that we're we're doing our own edits now. Yeah. Aftermarket. <laughs> yeah. Like, I like, like an aftermarket it. window tinting, but yeah. we're just doing aftermarket. Yeah. It's, I like yeah. that we're editing the New York Times. No big deal. Right. Fine. <laughs> <This is> Thanks. <laughs> this is my um, personal correction. <laughs> Personal correction. That's good. That's yeah. good. We're gonna get that trending. Uh, how you feel? You feel like we we covered it at all? Yeah. I mean, I I've never. I mean, I think we got to some stuff that I was not able to share with anyone else. You know. Um, so I yeah, guess. I feel good. I think there's something in here for writers. All right. Well, thank you again, right. Mitch, for joining us. Yeah. Uh, his website is MitchellSJackson.com. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now, yeah. both at Mitch S. Jackson. He'll be at the Portland Book Festival in November. Yeah. We will obviously post to that, and you can check the Literary Arts website. Get the big, beautiful book, Fly, the big book of basketball fashion, then message me and we can nerd out and talk about it forever (laughs) um, because I love it so very much. Also, I grew up knowing and hearing about Wilt Chamberlain, obviously, but yeah. did not know who. Now, as a grown ass woman, seeing those photos, I was yeah. like, "He's oh. fly, wasn't he?" Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Now you know. <laughs> now what? We got the shirt open to his uh, navel. <laughs> I saw like, that one. That's the one. <laughs> That's, That's the, the one. Exact that one is I the one. That. And I was feeling <laughs> There was some thirst trap editing that happened in this book. That's what I have to say about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know it. <laughs> I'm glad you liked. I'm glad you liked. Uh, I did like. I'm going to just keep it propped open <laughs> on my desk on a, for a sad day. Uh that's it for We Can't Print This for today. You can see more info about this episode at our website, our Instagram. Sign up for our newsletter. We also have bi-weekly culture picks, industry news, on and on. And our Instagrams at We Can't Print This. Yeah, and a reminder that we aren't backed by anyone. We're just two independent journalists giving you an insider look at writing because we love it. So you can support our work and the podcast by becoming a supporter on Patreon. Um, and a reminder, too, that Mitchell S. Jackson will be reading tonight at Powell's in Portland. So get down there. Show up, 503-971. Also welcome. All y'all, come on down. Um, and thank you so much to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and to Dave Depper for our intro music. Uh, this podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in Portland. And we always like to offer a big thanks to our third office mate, Rachel Ritchie, for turning on all the lights in the office before we get in. She turns on every single light. She's so weird. I like it, though. (laughs) If you are a writer with a great behind-the-story story, story, write to us at wecanprintthis at gmail.com. 